After the sermon, we will voice our Amen together, our Amen to the proclamation of God's Word. We will do that with the words of Psalm 75, stanzas 1, 3, 5, and 6. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you, boys and girls, who are members of the covenant too, in Lord's Day 4, we come to the last Lord's Day in the first section of the Catechism, a section about our sin and misery. We confess in Lord's Day 1 that this is one of the things that we have to know in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort that we confess in Lord's Day 1. And in Lord's Days 3 and 4, we are confronted with some questions, questions about why things are the way they are. And in Lord's Day 4, we are confronted with the question about whether whether or not God is fair or whether or not he is reasonable. That seems like a fair question, doesn't it? After all, God demands the impossible of us, doesn't he? We learn from Lord's Day 3 that we are totally incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. The form for the baptism of infants echoes this confession by stating that our children are children of wrath, subject to all kinds of misery, even to condemnation itself, yet God demands that we keep the law perfectly. The Lord demands, be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, Leviticus 11. We do our best, but our best is never good enough, is it? We're not capable. So is it fair of God to demand perfection? Is it right to ask a paralyzed man to walk? These are the kinds of things and questions and thoughts that Lord's Day 4 suggests. And the big question then comes in question and answer 11, but is God not also merciful? Can God be just and merciful at the same time? Well, the answer to that congregation is a resounding yes, but only for the sake of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, crucified in your place, only then can you think of God as a compassionate and merciful God. So I proclaim to you the gospel under the following theme, God demands that his justice be satisfied We will consider what his justice means, what his justice involves, and how his justice is good news for us. It is gospel. So the idea that God is a God of justice, a God of wrath, that fills us with fear and dread, doesn't it? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, So the thought of facing a judge who demands absolute perfection is frightening because you know that when you stand before a just judge, you are going to get what you deserve. Now in the beginning, in paradise, God's perfect standard, his perfect requirement, did not pose a problem. But those standards do pose a problem now, don't they? 
And we have this question. Why does God still demand of us, who are paralyzed people, that we should get up and walk according to his will and do it perfectly? Why doesn't God just lower his standards a little bit? After all, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? That's how we would approach the problem, wouldn't we? In fact, we do it all the time. Parents make demands of their children. If you do that and that, then you're going to get this and this. And then when it actually happens, we back off a little bit. When push comes to shove, we often don't follow through, do we, on our demands or on our threats. And our judicial system works the same way. Judges often consider what they call extenuating circumstances when someone is pronouncing judgment. So the thought of God lowering his standards, that sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? Because if he would lower his standards, he wouldn't have to be so angry with us when we don't measure up. Wouldn't that be a relief? Isn't that how we often think of justice? We would consider the circumstances, but the Bible paints a different picture of justice. In Scripture, the word for justice has basically the same meaning as the word righteousness. To do justice is to do what is right. The opposite of justice would be to do wrong, to deal with someone in a wrong way. Now let's consider God's relationship with mankind. It was not God who dealt wrongly with man. God so created man that he was able to do all that God asked of him. Question and answer nine. But, again, man deliberately robbed himself of all of these gifts and his descendants as well. So, it's helpful, though, in order to think through all the questions that are brought up by Lord's Day 4, to ask ourselves, well, what if God had reacted differently? What if he had lowered his standards after the fall into sin? But if we think that way, then we would have to conclude that already before the fall into sin, God had his standards way too high. Should God then not have lowered his standards already before the fall into sin? Well, congregation, thankfully, we may hold on to the confession that God is indeed just and honest and fair. And that's why he doesn't lower his standards. In fact, it is because he does not lower his standards that we have every reason to believe and to confess the comfort of the gospel. We read from Psalm 5, in which David sings about God who does not take pleasure in the wicked. God hates all evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, this is not vindictiveness on David's part, that he sings this way, but he knows that if the Lord does not detest these sins of deceit and wickedness, then David would be forced to accept the idea that this is just normal. He, he better just get used to all of these things. Practically speaking, that would mean we would, have to, we would have to just accept that sin is normal. Get used to it. Get used to war and murder and persecution and heresies in the church. That's just part of life. That's just the way it is. And the conclusion of this line of thinking would have to be that 
If God lowers his standards, then he is the one who simply allows us to wallow in our sin and misery. And if he lowered his standards, what would be the solution then to the pain and the suffering and the misery that we have to endure in this life? If God lowered his standards, would he not be an unloving and uncaring God? And more to the point, would you have faith in a God who acted like this? A God who lowered himself to the standards of sin? Could you trust a God like that? You don't want to think about those consequences because that would mean that we would be stuck with death and sin forever. Congregation, we must be very thankful that God did not lower his standards after the fall into sin. And we have to keep in mind that God doesn't make this demand like we would. God is not a man. He doesn't think like we do, as if he's hoping for the best, thinking, well, I know they can't do it, but I'm still going to demand it. Keep on demanding this, and we'll just see what happens. God is not blindly at work, as if he doesn't know what he's doing. And we may never think that way, because we may never separate God's justice from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We'll hear more about that in in the last part of the sermon. What What we need to recognize is that God's justice means that he keeps his promises. His justice demands that he keeps his covenant obligations. Right In the beginning, God established a unique bond, a bond of love with the people that he created. And that bond came with promises, the promise of blessing, the promise of life. But that bond also included the promise of death for disobedience. And when Adam and Eve rebelled, they experienced, they immediately experienced that God kept his promise because they experienced spiritual death, alienation from God, separation from his love. They also experienced physical death, for as soon as they sinned, death entered entered creation, death and decay entered their bodies, and they immediately began to die. So scripture teaches that God kept his promises when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. And congregation, that is the key to understanding God's justice. Because he is a God who is eternally unchanging. His identity as the God of truth demands that he keeps his word. Moses writes in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In other words, God promised that there would be punishment for sin, and so sin must be punished. Or the demands of the law would change, and they they cannot, because God does not lower his standards. God does not change his standards. You see, justice is not an option for God. His faithfulness to his own nature demands that justice be satisfied. And since, as Paul writes in Romans 5, since all have died or all have sinned, we all face God's justice. We all face the penalty of death and alienation from God. And so God will not ask anything less of us 
than he did of our first parents, Adam and Eve, before the fall into sin. He cannot do this for his own sake, for the sake of his own glory, and for who he is. He remains true and faithful to his own word. There are many things that can change, but God does not change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word remains forever. And congregation, that's the biblical truth that underlies God's justice. It's natural for us to prefer to think of God's love and mercy. But God's covenant promises also force us to think of his justice. God's covenant forces us to come to terms with that, with the fact that we deserve both temporal and eternal punishment as we confess in this Lord's Day. And so the question for us is, do we believe that? Do you really believe that? It's one thing to confess this truth. It's one thing to believe that it's technically true. But it's quite another to accept this in your own heart. Are you truly convinced in your own heart that you deserve, that you deserve to be confronted by the justice of God? And do you believe that God's justice involves his terrible anger and punishment over sin, both in this life and in the next? That's what we confess in question answer 10. Because of sin, we are to expect God's justice, which is the penalty of death. And we cannot escape this. We cannot. We can't use the excuse, question answer 11, that God is also merciful. We cannot play off his mercy over against his justice. There's a prevalent thinking in mainstream Christianity today that that God will not execute his judgment. There are so-called preachers who claim that hell is not real. God is love. He wouldn't hurt a fly, let alone a human being. He loves everyone. Everyone will be saved. They teach that Jesus is the way to the Father, but there are many paths that lead to the Father. Jesus is not the only way. There is no hell, and somehow God will manage to bring everyone into heaven. After all, would a loving God condemn millions of people to hell? Well, congregation, that kind of thinking is the result of attempting to contrast God's love and God's justice. When we contrast his mercy with his anger over sin. But when you start to do that, that's when you run into trouble. Because then you will start emphasizing the one or the other. The Bible teaches that God's anger over sin is real and terrible. Psalm 5, David writes, God will not allow evildoers to stand before his eyes. He will destroy those who speak lies. And he he is personally affronted and offended by sin. In the second commandment, we read that God is a jealous God. That means he has holy zeal for his own honor and his own name. He is terribly displeased with any insult to his glory. The words of the prophet Nahum testify to this truth as well. Nahum was speaking out against the sins of Assyria and the people of Nineveh. 
He warned them that they had offended God by hurting his people. And how does God react to this offense? He comes, says Nahum, he will come in anger and wrath and with vengeance. The Lord is slow to anger, he writes, but in no way will God clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And in verse 8, the Lord proclaims that he will make a complete end of all his adversaries. All we have to do is think about all those people who drowned in the great flood. Well, no one and his family were in the ark. That was terrible. That was awful. God's anger was poured out over them, and he literally covered them with his anger. Think of what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed in one day because of their wickedness. Or think of what happened to God's own people, the children of Israel, whom he called the apple of his eye. They, too, did not escape earthly punishment for sin. How often did not the Lord punish them as they were traveling from Egypt to Canaan, through the wilderness, going to the promised land, and they even had the tabernacle in their midst. They were bringing sacrifices to God every day for the forgiveness of their sins. They had promised to follow him and obey him, but they continuously disappointed the Lord, and they complained and they grumbled. And we know how the Lord reacted to this. In passages like Numbers 11, we read that his anger burned against them and he struck them with a plague. On other occasions, he sent poisonous snakes among them or fire. The Lord is indeed a terrible God in his anger. And sinners ought to be rightly afraid of him. Congregation, we need to understand how terrible sin really is. We need to understand that our sins are an affront to our holy God, an affront to the, the fearfulness of his majesty. Sin is so terrible that God cursed everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And the ultimate consequence of that curse is the eternal agony of hell. And so God exercises his righteous judgment over sin, also sin in the church. He did not spare an entire generation of Israelites who grumbled and complained during those 40 years in the wilderness. He sent the ten northern tribes of Israel into permanent exile. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we need to realize that sin angers God. Every sin arouses his just wrath. You know what? For that truth, we need to be eternally grateful. Think of God's justice in these terms. If God did not keep the integrity of his justice, if he did not keep his promise to punish sin with death, would God still be God? No. The Bible says he is not a man that he could lie or change. But if he compromised his justice, would you or I still be able to take him at his word? If he would change his justice because of the circumstances, 
or if God would accept a plea bargain on your behalf, could you still really trust his promises? If he changed his mind about punishment, could we trust him never to change his mind about his promise of blessing? You realize these are rhetorical questions. Most importantly, if God would slack off on his just requirement of punishment for sin, of what consequence and benefit then would be the death of Christ on the cross? As I have reminded you before, congregation, I would remind you again that what we confess here in Lord's Day 4, or we who confess Lord's Day 4, we have already confessed Lord's Day 1. Let's never forget that, okay? This is the confession of a believer. It's important to remember that. I belong to Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. That's why I can confess Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 1, we confess that this is one of the things we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of that comfort of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is part of beginning to explore how we can enjoy that comfort. We confess that God has piled all of my sin onto my sinless Savior. Even though he was innocent, he was made guilty. God looked on him as the great sinner as he poured out his wrath on him. Jesus experienced the punishment that the wicked Psalm 5 and Nahum chapter 1 deserved, as it's described there. God's anger filled our Savior with so much fear that it pressed out of him sweat like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he suffered the agony of eternal death on those three hours of darkness on the cross. He experienced alienation from his Father in heaven. It's it's our human nature to, to be fairly casual about sin. So easy to have the attitude that says, well, you don't really have to worry that much because God's a God of love. You know, at the end of the day, just fold your hands and ask God to forgive your sins. And Yes, it's true. You can ask God to forgive your sins every day, and he will do it. But if you do it with a casual attitude, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if if you don't think about it very much, then that is not the language of faith. That is not the attitude of a believing heart. If we think this way, if we're casual about sin, then we are abusing the mercy of God. And then you have to ask yourself if you have truly repented from your sin. And you have to ask yourself if you have truly understood the meaning of the cross, as we also heard it this morning. You have to ask yourself if you have truly understood how God's justice was satisfied through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. All too often we fall into the trap of thinking that God is made up of two parts, one part justice, another part mercy. And at the end, God's mercy will outweigh his justice. Well, that cannot be, congregation. God is perfectly merciful and perfectly just. 100% merciful, 100% just. It's not a 50-50 thing. And the only way to make sense of this, congregation, is when we look to the cross. 
The only way to understand God's justice and mercy is to look at what happened on Golgotha. That is where God's wrath and justice meet God's love and mercy. That's where the curse of sin is replaced by the blessing of sacrifice. That's where the wrath of God is satisfied by the death of his own son. God showed his perfect mercy in this, that he sent his son into this world to die for our sins. But at the same time, he showed his perfect justice by piling our sins on his son so that he would have to bear the wrath of God. All we can do is thank and praise him for this, can we not? We should thank him and praise him for being just and unchangeable. Because otherwise, there would be no forgiveness of sins in Christ. And we could never present our children for baptism either. God is just and merciful. That's why we can present our children for baptism. Because our children are by nature children of wrath. And these little children who come before the Lord for baptism, they are not capable even of asking God to forgive their sins. But yet he gives them the sign and seal of his covenant promises, knowing who they are. And even though these little ones deserve eternal punishment, God says, you are mine and I am your God. I look on you in love and I am faithful to my word, so listen to me. Trust me and love me and serve me. And so, congregation, it is true. God looks on us in love. He looks on us in love. But never forget that his love for us is possible only because our Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God 100%. Amen.